0: Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 is where we're going to be tonight. Matthew 3 verses 1 through 7 and then we'll probably continue on a little bit further, Lord willing. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, we're going to stop there. We'll pick up in verse seven in just a little bit. Let's just stop there. Right At this point now, Matthew introduces his readers to John the Baptist, but he's really not introducing his readers to John the Baptist John the Baptist was a well-known figure. And remember, Matthew's writing to to, uh, Jewish Christians and they knew who John the Baptist was. Actually, everybody knew who John the Baptist was. And if you do any study of history, you'll find that the historian Jerome actually even recorded about John the Baptist. He was a very, very well-known figure in that day. So they didn't need to be introduced to John the Baptist. They knew who John the Baptist was, but he's introducing him in a different way to them He's letting them know that this is the one that the prophet Isaiah spoke about, the one the prophet Isaiah prophesied about, the one who's going to cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Interestingly enough, all of the Gospel uh, accounts of John the Baptist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so on, all of them refer to this passage of Scripture when they introduce John. But let's go to Isaiah chapter 40 and take a look at that passage that Isaiah wrote about and uh, is being referenced here in this passage. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, as you're going to see tonight, you've got to stick with me here. This is referring to John the Baptist, but it's also referring to Elijah. You say, huh? Like I said, stick with me. Because there's prophecy here that was fulfilled with John the Baptist, but has not been completely filled. If you remember our study of the book of Revelation and we st- our study of the tribulation period and all that. At the end of the tribulation period, what happens to the whole earth? It's left a massive earthquake. All the mountains are leveled. The islands are gone. The only thing that's that's not flat is that section of Jerusalem that's going to be raised up above. Here we see that every valley's going to be lifted up, every mountain's going to and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. and The glory of the Lord's going to be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Has that happened yet? But there is a prophecy here about John the Baptist. How do we know this? Well, we just read here in Matthew chapter three. This is the one that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the scripture tells us that that's referring to John the Baptist as that portion of Isaiah chapter 40. But did you also know that Isaiah wasn't the only one who prophesied about John the Baptist? Malachi did as well, go to Malachi chapter four. Malachi chapter four, look at verses five and six. Very last thing we have written in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 5, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here, the last thing that the prophet Malachi said before 400 years of silence, before Jesus comes on the scene, The last thing that the prophet Malachi says is, God says through him, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, some of you say, wait a minute, Jim. This isn't talking about John the Baptist. This is talking about Elijah. Well, actually... As you're about to see, from putting all of Scripture together, that's how you've got to build your theology, using all of Scripture, you'll see that not only is it talking about Elijah, it's also talking about John the Baptist. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at the story of the birth of John the Baptist, just a small section of it. In Luke chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 17. It says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division... For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does that sound familiar? That sounds almost like the prophecy we just saw in Malachi chapter 4. Here we see that but Eli, John the Baptist was going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And again, we see, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and so on. Go with me now to Matthew chapter 17. And it all comes together even more clearly. Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 13. Look at verses one, Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom i'm well pleased listen to him when the disciples heard this they fell on their faces and were terrified but jesus came and touched them saying rise and have no fear and when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one but jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain jesus commanded them tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead and the disciples asked him then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will, still future, restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did to him, did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, you all understand it? Is that all clear now? We good? We ready to move on? It's a little boggling, isn't it? Well, let's see if the Lord can help us grasp this a little bit. We see that Elijah was a powerful prophet. We know that from the Scripture. But he had already died by the time Malachi's prophecy came. And in Malachi, God says through Malachi that God is going to send Elijah before that day of the Lord and he's going to turn the hearts of the people back to the fathers, fathers to the children. And otherwise, if he doesn't, God's going to send utter destruction on Israel. Now. John the Baptist is uh, pronounced by the angel Gabriel to his dad, Zechariah, that he's going to have a child and he's going to name him John. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he's going to go in the power and the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and so on. And so he was told that he was going to be an Elijah, if you will, a fulfillment of that prophecy as he goes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Now, after John the Baptist has already been put to death this is that happens in chapter 11 and following of Matthew we're in chapter 17 here at some point, Jesus, right before He goes to the cross, is transfigured and when He's up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, His glory just shines through. We'll get to that in much more detail when we get to Matthew 17. But not only does His glory shine through, Moses and Elijah appear there on the mountain with Him and they're talking with Him. Actually, and we we'll can't wait to get into it when we do, they're actually talking with Him about what's going to take place in Jerusalem in the future, which is kind of cool. One of the Gospel accounts brings that out. So course, Peter freaks out and says, we're going we're to build shelters for these guys? And by the time he's done talking, God had already started talking and Moses and Elijah are gone. And as they're going down, Jesus says, you can't tell anybody what you saw until after I've risen from the dead. Again, I'm not teaching on this passage. so I'm not going to break all that down yet. But then they said, okay, we got a question though. We just saw Elijah. Why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? And Jesus says, Elijah will come and restore all things. By the way, that's one of the scriptural places, and I'll deal with it much more when we get to this chapter, that shows, I believe, why I believe one of the two witnesses in Jerusalem will be Elijah. I believe it's going to be Moses and Elijah. And I'll lay all that out when we get there. But Jesus said, Elijah is still going to come. But then he says something cryptic. He said, but Elijah has already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted. And then they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. Here's where it gets really hard for us. Because in our minds, we don't understand being outside of time. But actually, when John the Baptist came, his role was to prepare the nation of Israel to receive their Messiah. And if they had received him as their Messiah, he would have been the fulfillment of that passage. But they didn't receive him as the Messiah, and just like the prophecy said, he's still gonna come. You remember back in Isaiah, how the scripture said, that was referring to John the Baptist, make ready a people prepared for the Lord, yet at the same time as we touched on just briefly, there's other things that haven't been fulfilled yet. Folks, this is the, the deep part of God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. Do you have a choice or does God already know the choice you're going to make? Yes. And that's the whole point is, is they had a, re- a choice. Now, don't miss this. Some people think, well, if they had just received him as the Messiah, the kingdom would have begun. No, he still had to die. If they, people think, well, if they had just received him as their Messiah, if they had accepted that he was the promised one and they had just received him as their Messiah, the kingdom would have begun right there and then. Not unless he had died first, because the prophecy said that he had to die. And that's what the scripture of Jesus himself even said when he talked to the disciples after he rose from the dead. Don't you understand that the Son of Man had to suffer these things and then be killed, and then three days later. if, if He could have been their Messiah, and the kingdom could have started then, but only if they understood that he had to die for their sins first and still accept him as their Messiah. The fact that he was not willing to be what they wanted him to be and that he was saying as he got closer and closer to the end, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, the elders, the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to kill me. But three days later, I'll rise. When he stopped being what they hoped he would be, when he stopped feeding everybody and healing everybody and started talking about going to the cross, they changed their minds about him. So did was John the Baptist Elijah? Yes, he was. Is John the Baptist the only Elijah that's going to come? No. Jesus Himself said He was Elijah, but Elijah's still going to come and restore all things. So, now, again, more on that when we get to chapter 17. We'll get into much more on that in chapter 17, but that's enough for now. So, John the Baptist has just been introduced to the nation of Israel here if, in Matthew's writing. But he's, they already knew who he was. He was just pointing out that this is the one that the prophecy said was going to be. Now, look, you see in verse 4, John was the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. Some of you say, wait a minute, he's in the New Testament, right? But he's the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. And not only that, he actually dressed like one. What did he wear? According to the scripture, camel's hair and what? And leather belt around his waist. Okay, well, let's go back now to 2 Kings chapter 1. A lot of us over the years have probably just thought, well, that's an interesting garb. Well, actually, scripture shows us that's how prophets dressed. In 2 Kings chapter 1, look at verses uh, 1 through 8. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal above, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no god in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal's above, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, That's Elijah the Tishbite. He even dressed like Elijah. Isn't that interesting? Go to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, look at verses 4 and 5. It says, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. When he prophesies, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil for a man. a man sold me in my youth. So this is talking about the end times when Jesus comes and shows up and proves all these false prophets wrong. They're going to quickly take off the camel's hair and say, oh, I'm not a prophet. But they had dressed like one to fool people. By the way, are there not People out there today that claim to be speaking for God, who aren't, they'll be dealt with by Jesus. The Bible actually says that our job is to watch out for them, to watch out for the false teachers, and the Bible does not say that it's our job to go root them out. The Bible just says watch out for them, examine their fruit, listen to the spirit, listen to the ones that are obviously coming from God and ignore the ones that aren't, stay away from them. But it's not our job to go prove who's a false teacher or not. Stay away from all that mess. All it does is get you caught up in Satan's little ploy to get you distracted from the important stuff. All right? So John the Baptist dressed like a prophet, actually dressed just like Elijah did. By the way, I just found this out in my study. I just thought it'd be interesting. The whole locust and wild honey, we know that the scripture said that God was going to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey, so we got no problem with Elijah eating honey. But the whole idea that he's going to be eating locusts, probably like... But you know what? The, the Bible actually talks about the fact that eating locusts is okay. Remember, there are all these ceremonial laws and Levitical laws on what is proper to eat and what's not proper to eat. Go real quickly with me to Leviticus chapter 11. His diet actually fulfilled the Levitical requirements. I'm not saying I recommend it. Leviticus, you tell me. You go ahead and you can tell me, Sheila, if it's any good. Yeah, Leviticus 11, look at verses 20 through 23. It says, All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Interestingly enough, I guess if you put chocolate on it, you'd probably get it down. Maybe he was dipping them in honey. We don't know. But we see here that his diet actually met the requirements. But his diet was locusts and wild honey. And that's pretty much what he lived on because he lived out in the desert area of Judea. All right. Now, what was John the Baptist's message? Repent. Now, we're going to spend some time here tonight. Because I don't really think that people today really understand the word repent or what the meaning of repentance means. The word repentance is the Greek word metanoia, M-E-T-A-N-I-O, sorry, try it again, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A, metanoia. And it means to change your mind, but it's more than just changing your mind. It's a change of mind which leads to a change in conduct. Okay? It's a change of mind. Meta means to change, and metanoia means a change of mind. But this is more than just a change of mind. It's a change of mind that is so severe and so intense, it actually changes your conduct. You don't act the same way anymore when there's true repentance. All right? Now, this is not remorse or sorrow, although those, those are sometimes included in repentance. Repentance without a change of action is not repentance at all. And we're going to take a look at that. Go with me to Matthew chapter 3 and look at verses 7 and 8. It says when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance." In other words, if you're truly repentant, because that's what his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because you need to understand your sin, your lost condition, your need for righteousness in order to be ready to receive what God's about to do through this one that I'm preparing the way for. You need to understand your sin condition. And if you're truly repentant, I'll baptize you. But then the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up, and we're going to get to a little bit later tonight why they showed up. But they showed up and he said, "Hey, on, guys, i um, I want to see evidence of your repentance before I baptize you. You go show evidence of your repentance. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus, of course, which is also a message to all the churches. Because in each of these letters to the seven churches, he says to all of them, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. In Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you, unless you repent. Again, repent is tied to what? Change of action. Real repentance is a change of mind, which is followed by your actions. Now, I'm going to take you to Matthew 27, and I'm going to ask you a question. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I'm setting you up. Go to Matthew 27. Remember, the definition of repentance is a change of mind, right? Manifested in a change of action. Matthew 27, look at verses 3 through 5. This is after Jesus had been delivered to Pilate. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. Did Judas repent? Very good. She said, no, he regretted. And actually, this is where Greek helps. Actually, I don't know Greek that well. I just know people that know Greek, and they do the work for me. Lord, just give me the memory to remember it. The word here that's translated change of mind actually is not metanoia. It's actually a word that means regret. You see, some people regret things they did, and they have a slight change of mind. But it doesn't add up to, if you will, true repentance, unless the repentance turns you in the other direction so that you actually go and right the wrong, if you will. Go ahead. Can we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 real quick? Sure, go for it. No, it's not in my notes, but it's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Yep. Paul's talking about the fact that he actually, uh, he feels bad that he made him feel bad, but he doesn't feel bad that he made him feel bad when he wrote what he wrote to him. For it says, "...for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in that matter. In other words, what he says was, you had real repentance because it was a change of heart and change of mind that tried to right the wrong. Why? And I'll get back to to Judas. That's in 2 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Now, we're going back to Judas. He regretted what he did. He realized that he had betrayed innocent blood. But did he realize that he, Jesus, was God? No, he just said, I've betrayed innocent blood. He threw the money back, but then he went and did what? Went and fell at the feet of Jesus and said, Jesus, forgive me. No, he went and committed suicide. Now again, listen closely, there are some people that teach that if you commit suicide, you've committed an unpardonable sin. No, that's not what the Bible teaches, but at the same time, it shows where he really was. It wasn't that he wanted to go and make things right. True repentance means you have change of mind about who Jesus is. And if he understood who Jesus really was, he would have gone to Jesus and sought His forgiveness and sought His grace. It was a regret. He realized I did wrong. Man, I wish I hadn't have done that. I feel really bad, but it wasn't true repentance because true repentance says, I'm going to respond in the way that God wants me to respond to this. Do you understand? I'm sorry? Yep, exactly. You're talking about in Matthew 27 with Judas? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good translation of that word. He had remorse. He had regret. People have wrestled, by the way, over the years whether or not Judas is actually in heaven because some people have tried to take that episode and make it look like he repented and that he was, because if he repented, then God would forgive him. No, Jesus actually said that Judas went where he belonged. Jesus said he was a child of perdition from the beginning. Jesus said, I didn't lose any you gave me except the one that I never had. So, folks, Judas is in hell, plain and simple. And this is why I want to bring this out to you. We need to look at repentance because a lot of people today talk about repentance, talk about regret for their sin, talk about sorrow, but they don't change. Some people even would say, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but. Is that repentance? No. Go ahead. Yeah. He has guilt. He has guilt. Exactly. Yes. He understood his guilt. But those of us who are in Christ, as you said it, there's no condemnation. True repentance, which leads a lost person to salvation, is a change of mind about who Jesus is and their sin condition. It's a change of mind about who Jesus is and their sin condition. Go to Acts chapter 2. But I believe without question that the Bible teaches that if a person has true biblical repentance, they're going to be saved. I think it's so intertwined with faith and salvation. Again, please don't hear me of going down the road that God is the one that determines who's saved and who's not. He is in one sense, apart from Him doing His work in your heart, no one's repented. The Bible says no one seeks God. The the Bible actually teaches that if you're repentant, God began that work in your heart to bring you to repentance. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Peter even prayed at one point that God may grant someone repentance. That doesn't mean that if I don't repent, God didn't do it. No, God gives the opportunity. He brings us to that point of repentance. He has to do that work in our heart, though, because apart from God doing that work in our heart, none of us would acknowledge our guilt. All of us, as Paul said, if I judge myself, I wouldn't, I'd give myself a clean bill of hell. Why do teachers not let kids grade their own papers? They'd all get straight A's. Look at Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 37 through 41. Peter's just been preaching the gospel there at Pentecost under the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Peter said, repent and be baptized when? Before or after the people were cut to their heart? After. This whole bringing someone to repentance is the Holy Spirit's job. It's not our job. Jesus in John chapter 16 said, it's good for you that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. And when he comes, he will convict the world of their guilt their need of righteousness, the fact that there's a coming judgment. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Unfortunately, we have been taught over the years in churches in evangelism to start with someone on page one of a tract who has never even heard about God and begin to walk them through the gospel. And we get to page 10 and we say, hey, John, would you like to pray that prayer right now? The Holy Spirit has hardly had this time to do his work. Actually, if we would just share the gospel, believing that it's powerful enough by itself, preach what Jesus did, preach his sinless life, preach his his sacrificial death, preach his own resurrection by his own power, and leave it at that, the Spirit of God is the one who brings people to repentance. And folks, when the Spirit of God brings someone to repentance, just get out of the way. They're going to get saved. But we're in such a hurry to get conversions We've been taught to measure results. I'm gonna go down a road that I hadn't planned. It's not in my notes, but I think God's given me the freedom to do it. I had the privilege just this past week of preaching in Ohio in a church. I've never preached that before. I actually never preached in Ohio before. It was really kind of fun. Well, yeah. well there you go. <laughs> now, I will tell you, I was in the booney part of Ohio to the point that driving just from my hotel to the church and back that week, Sunday through, through Wednesday, I drove eight and a half hours. Just driving from my hotel to the church and back that week. But while I was there, God had me go down a road that I want to go down for a second. We have been taught in our churches, especially many of you who grew up in Baptist circles, to measure results, right? How many baptisms? What's your per capita giving? We've been raised to have that plaque on the front of the sanctuary with how many in Sunday school last week and how much the offering was and how many in attendance, And we've been taught to measure results. Yet the Bible says that the results are totally up to God. I'm going to ask you a question. Was Jeremiah a success or a failure? He was a success in God's eyes, but a failure in man's eyes. If Jeremiah was alive today, nobody would ask him to preach at convention. Because nobody listened to him. We all love to preach that passage where God says to Isaiah, whom will I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. By the way, does anybody know the very next verse? We all stop there. Exactly. The very next verse. Oh, by the way, you're going to be ever preaching and they won't listen. They're going to, you're going to be ever speaking and they won't hear. How many of us would sign up for that? But because we've been taught to measure results, how are we doing? Are we growing? I'm going to ask you a question I've asked before. I'm going to ask it again and again until Jesus takes me home. How many times did Paul say, how many are you running when he wrote to a church? Never. How many times did he say when he wrote to churches, how many of you reached for Christ? Yet we sit around, by the way, the answer to that one's never as well. We sit around judging ourselves as a church, judging other churches, comparing ourselves. We even have associational meetings where we give awards to those who have baptized the most church, most people, or had the most giving. And we've been taught to measure how we're doing. And what it does is it pulls us out of the abiding relationship. It makes us now focus on getting results. And we've been trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit. And we wonder why our churches are full of people who claim to be Christians, claim to be church members, and act the way they do in business meeting. (laughs) Folks, let me tell you, it's time we go back to believing in the power of the word of God. It's a powerful, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't need your help, but I want to see results. So what? So what? Are you willing to just do what he's asked you to do, even if you don't see results? The danger of going down that road will make you have to say that Jesus was better sorry, Peter was better at preaching than Jesus, because Peter had 3,000 people believe in one sermon, and Jesus after three years, we only have 500 that we can count. You really want to go down that road? Folks, stop judging how well you guys are doing as a church on whether or not you're growing or whether or not you're shrinking. Are you being faithful to what He told you to do? Plant and water, it's God who takes care of the increase. And just be faithful to do what He's asked you to do. Actually, go to John chapter 4 real quick, and then we'll get back to Matthew. Go to John chapter 4. Jesus has been speaking with the woman at the well. The disciples have gone into food to, uh, down to buy some food. Um, they come back and say, eat something. And He says, I have food you don't know about. They, they, they wonder, someone brought him something to eat. In verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white or ripe for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What if God called you just to be a sower? What if all God wants you to do is plant seed all over the place? What if God called you just to go around and water that seed? What if God wants you to then be a harvester? We all have different gifts and different roles. One plants, another waters. It's God who provides the increase. And if there's someone that's gifted by God to harvest, great. But that doesn't make them any better than other people. We always tell the story of the person who shared the gospel and the person got saved. And we all clap. But we never tell the story of the person that shared the gospel and the person rejected. That person was just as faithful. The person that loved the seed and watered That's how you water the seed, by the way. You live your life in such a way that your life matches up with the gospel. That's how you water it. You show people the love of Christ. Folks, it's time we stopped looking at all the stuff that we in the church have been looking at and go back to just walking with Jesus. Oh, by the way, you're going to find being a Christian is a whole lot more fun without all the pressure we put on ourselves to accomplish things. All right, let's go back. I think we're studying the book of Matthew. Go back to Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. Let me just say this and we're going to get into verses 7 through 12. John's message of repentance was simply a message about sin and the need of people to acknowledge their sin and be willing to turn from their sin to be ready for what God was about to do through the one who was coming that John was preparing the way for, okay? Let me show you what I mean. Go to Mark. I told you Matthew, but we'll go to Mark real quick because Mark's account makes it a little bit more clear for us. Go to Mark chapter 1, verses 1-8. through 8. We see uh, the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry pretty well described here in Mark's Gospel, in Mark's account. In Mark chapter 1, verses 1-8, through 8, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." John's role was to prepare the way for Jesus. And his message was, God's sending someone way more powerful than me. I'm just baptizing with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But in order for you to be ready for what God's going to do through this one, you need to acknowledge your sin. If you're willing to acknowledge your sin, come be baptized to show you have a metanoia, true repentance, a change of mind. The old me's gone. I'm a new person. That's what John's baptism was. The old me's gone. I've changed my way. All right? Now, go back to Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 12. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't, don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right? Now... The reason the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming out to see John were partially because large crowds were going out to see him. Go back to chapter 3 and look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to see John the Baptist, out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan and confessing their sins. What we know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, why why is this bothering them? Exactly. They're all going out to see this other guy. You remember when they were dealing with Jesus, they said, if this guy keeps this up, we're going to lose our place. They were worried about how it was going to affect them. By the way, didn't Paul warn the church there in Ephesus when he talked to the, the, the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and he warned them when he was meeting with them in Miletus and he said, after I leave, I know that savage wolves are going to come in from among the flock to lead disciples after themselves. There's a lot of people there for their own followers, for their own thing. They, well, as I said years, for years, there are a lot of pastors out there that like the fact that their name's on the bus. It's one of the saddest things over the years I've noticed is that all our churches have Pastor So-and-So is the pastor here. You've heard me ask before, who was the pastor at Corinth? Who was the pastor at Philippi? Who was the pastor at Colossae? The Bible doesn't say. But we've been wanting to glorify a man. And there's a lot of men that love the attention. So, the Pharisees we were losing their attention. They were doing everything for the show. Everybody watching, everything they did was so people would be impressed with them. All of a sudden, all these people are going out into the wilderness to hear this guy preach. They're kind of curious about that. But there's also another reason. Go with me to John chapter one. You see, they also had sent the priests and the Levites to examine John and they weren't satisfied with what John told the priests and the Levites. Go to John chapter one. And so because of that, they themselves now go go out to examine him. John chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Wait a minute. I thought we'd already been down this road. I thought John the Baptist was Elijah. Jesus said he was Elijah. John the Baptist said, I'm not Elijah. Remember what we looked at earlier. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And I say to you, he was Elijah. But they did to him. By the way, if you, a lot of us left that part off. And Jesus then said, oh, and they're going to do the same thing to the Son of Man. They did to him whatever they wanted, and they're going to do the same to me. But was he Elijah? Yes and no. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Could have been Elijah, but he's not Elijah. By the way, Elijah is still going to come. The Bible says it. Jesus said it. It's going to happen. Elijah is still going to come. They said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? By the way, the the Jews didn't understand that the Christ and the prophet were the same person. The prophecies. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the Pharisees had already sent the scribes and the Levites to go examine him. They came back with their report, and it's obvious that the Pharisees now want to go check it out for themselves. So when they show up, John the Baptist sees them coming and he says, Whoa, 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 I'm not baptizing any of you till I see evidence of this. Real change of heart. Now, The Pharisees and the Sadducees were resting in national salvation. They were believing that because Abraham was their father, they were God's chosen and his special people. John says to them, as we just read here, go back to verse 9, and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This is Matthew 3, verse 9. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Then he goes on and says, I baptize you with water, but one's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is now saying to them that trusting in their physical descent from Abraham was not enough. They needed to be people of faith like their father, Abraham, in order to be righteous. See, they thought that just because they were descendants of Abraham, they're good. By the way, I don't know if you notice or not, but I think that's going to be a major part of the one world religion. There's a big movement right now to unite Christians, Jews and Muslims all together in one group. It's a big movement that's happened for years and it's growing steam, gaining steam. And what they say is, is if Christians and Jews and Muslims all got along, there would be no more wars. They don't understand man and sin, but in the world eyes, the eyes of the world, that's the problem. And so, what they say though is this: Christians claim to come from Abraham, Jews come to come from, claim to come from Abraham, and Muslims claim to come from Abraham. If we can all get them to agree on the fact that they all come from Abraham, we're going to be good. But actually, John is saying, and I'm going to show you from the scriptures. The scripture says it's not physical descendant from Abraham that gives you salvation or righteousness it's becoming a spiritual descendant of Abraham. In other words, being a man or woman of faith like Abraham was. We're not gonna have, for the sake of time, have you turn there, but in Genesis 15, 6, the scripture says, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Go to Romans chapter 4. If you've never camped out in Romans 4, I encourage you to do so. It's a lot of fun. Look at Romans 4. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In other words, nothing. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who doesn't work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will will not count as sin. That's Psalm 32, by the way, verses 1 and 2. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, it's the, if, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, sorry, where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I don't know if you grasp that or not. If not, go back and spend some time reading it again and meditating on it. There's wonderful, deep truth here. But you say, Jim, I, I can't go read it and understand it. I need someone to explain it to me. Oh, You don't understand the promise of the Lord. If the Holy Spirit's within you, he'll give you insight. He'll give you understanding. The Bible's promised that for everyone who's saved. Just go spend some time believing that God will show you and read it. But let me give you the short version. Abraham believed God and God gave him righteousness because of his faith in God's promise. Was he circumcised when that promise was made or was that before he was circumcised? It was before. And Paul said, that's so that all of us who haven't been circumcised aren't Jewish, if you will, can receive that same promise. We are all descendants of Abraham if we are men and women of faith because that's who his descendants are going to be. Are he, is he going to save all the Jews at the, in the end? The Bible does say in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. So are all the Jews going to be saved? No, only those who have faith like Abraham. Now, The Bible, when it talks about all Israel will be saved, it's talking about the ones that survived the tribulation period. Those are the ones who are going to have faith and they'll be given righteousness. But again, it's for everyone who would believe. All right. Now, interestingly enough, though, and this is where it gets a little confusing. And listen, it became confusing for John the Baptist. John's message was that the one coming after him was going to be judging sin. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll clear this threshing floor. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. John did say, by the way, as we read in Matthew 3, that the one to come would baptize with the Holy Spirit and gather his wheat into the barn and we'll deal with that more next week. But John's message mainly was that the one to come would be dealing with sin and therefore a need to repentance. Wasn't that John's message? Watch out, he's coming, and he's going to, I mean, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. In other words, he's about to cut it down, chop it away, and throw it in the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and as you know, you took the good stuff and you kept it, and the bad, the chaff, you threw it in the fire. His message was, the one coming after me is going to deal with sin. Folks, you better acknowledge your sin, because here he comes, he's going to deal with sin. What John didn't know was that the one to come after him, for his first way of dealing with sin was to take it upon himself. Did Jesus come when he came the first time to deal with sin? He sure did, but not in the way that John understood. Actually, if you were to go to Matthew chapter 11, you'll see that John's sitting in prison and he sends some of his disciples to say, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? This is the same that John the Baptist that said, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. This is the same one that says, I didn't know who he was unless the one who sent me to baptize told me. That's the, the one you see the spirit come down on, that's the one. Ah, he must increase. I must decrease. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If anybody knew who Jesus was, it was John the Baptist. But now John's sitting in prison, and Jesus isn't looking like he thought he would look. He's eating with sinners. He's being nice. And he's throwing John off. And he sends his disciples to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Again, when we get to Matthew 11, we'll break that down in much more detail. But see, John didn't even understand. The scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the prophets searched intently trying to figure out the times and the seasons that the Spirit of Christ was prophesying through them. They knew what God was saying. They knew it had some significance. They kind of understood part of it, but they didn't fully grasp it. And even the prophets didn't fully understand what they were saying. But they didn't understand, and neither did John, that Jesus' way of dealing with sin when he came the first time was to take sin upon himself. Second Corinthians five twenty one you already know. He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Go to Romans chapter eight, look at verses one through four. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen closely. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law can't make you righteous. You know why? Because the law is not good? No, the law is holy and perfect. Then how come the law can't make us holy? It says right here, because of the weakness of our flesh. What does the law do to us who have this sin in our flesh? It makes us want to sin more, doesn't it? Paul said, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law said, don't covet. And then every covetous desire rose up in me. Look at what it says here in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Jesus dealt with sin, but he dealt with it by taking it upon himself, becoming sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 10 through 14. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Folks, the Jews, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, thought that they were righteous before God because they were descendants of Abraham. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to do all the right things. They're tithing on their mint and their cumin and they were doing all this stuff. But what did Jesus say to them? He said, "Uh, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And folks, I want you to understand that the Jews thought they were okay because they did these things. And doesn't Jesus say, many will say, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? You know what? We could spend our time talking about how our churches are full of people that probably aren't even born again. But what does the Bible say is supposed to be our response to the fact that there's weeds among the wheat? Are we to try to separate who's saved and who's not? No, our enemy's done this. Jesus' enemy has put weeds among the wheat. There's going to be lost people in our churches. And they might even be in leadership. But don't get caught up in trying to determine who's saved and who's not. What should be our response? Me. Lord, confirm in my heart that I'm yours. The Bible says his spirit testifies with our spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourself as whether well not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? It's too easy to get caught up looking at everybody around you. I've dealt with so many people in my travels, by the way, as I've been around. I was in a a little town in, in Galax, Virginia, walking down the streets with my wife. We ended up in this one shop, and he was making fiddles and making banjos. And I love, by the way, I love banjo music. I don't know why. It's just my favorite, favorite kind of music. I could sit and listen to banjo music for hours. As we were talking with this man in that shop, he then... I explained who I was, and that I was in town preaching for a week, invited him to the church. I used to go to that church. I helped build that basement. When they needed to dig out the basement to make more Sunday school class back in 1960, boom, 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 I dug that basement out. Well, why aren't you there now? Ah, this happened and that happened, and I, I decided I wasn't going to go into church anymore. But I'm okay. Again, everything in may wants to go, don't see any evidence of it, but that's between him and the Lord. But there's a lot of people that think they're okay because they've dug out a church basement. I mean, I'm pretty sure when he stands before the Lord, he's going to bring that up. Lord, I <laughs> remember me? I'm the one that spent all those hours in the dark, in the dirt, digging the basement out. That's got to count for something. Mm-mm. Let me say to you as well, for those of us who are already in Christ, Stop trying to get more points by working harder for him and rest in the fact that he's got a plan for your life and it might just be sowing. It just might be watering. You might be one of those ones who gets to see a harvest every now and then. But don't try to work harder for Jesus. Rest in the fact that you're his and that he has a plan for you and he will accomplish it. Even John the Baptist didn't fully understand the role of Jesus. Correct? Does that mean we're going to fully understand who Jesus is and how he does his stuff? If John the Baptist could misunderstand who Jesus is and what his purpose is, don't you think we're going to make mistakes too? Oh, be careful, because most of us spend a lot of our time making decisions on how we think God should have done something. Don't we? It, <laughs> blessed are those who are not offended by me, Matthew eleven six. 6. So I want to encourage you tonight. Relax. Let Jesus be God. He's got a wonderful plan and a purpose. Oh, and by the way, it's going to be accomplished with or without you. So why don't you just rest in the fact that he's going to get his stuff done and enjoy being one of his children. I love you. We'll see you next week.